please open your Bible to the little book called Nahum. If you are used to finding Jonah, all you need to do is turn a couple pages to the right. The book comes Jonah and then Micah and then Nahum. I've chosen to preach on this little book for two reasons. And first is that if I had to guess, I would assume that most Christians that I know, even some of the best Christians that I know, if I were to ask them to define for me or describe what they would find in the book of Nahum off the top of their head, I think many of them could not do it. In fact, I think many of them would have no idea where to even start describing what's going on in this little book. It's tucked away right here in the middle of the Minor Prophets, and it is widely ignored. So the first reason to preach this book is because it is often neglected. The second purpose for which I have in mind is to conclude our thinking regarding the book of Jonah. See, these two books work together in large part to create a strong sense of what God was doing with and to the Assyrian Empire, this great nation. Jonah preached the message that God had given to him, and that brought about revival in Assyria. And now, roughly 120 years later, the Lord is giving a prophecy about Assyria to the people of Israel, and they are telling the Israelites, God is telling them about the coming judgment. This was a message from God about them, but this is not a message to them. So unlike the book of Jonah, where Jonah went and proclaimed, and it was notable that within that proclamation, it necessarily included a merciful opportunity to avoid destruction, Nahum offers no such grace. This is a book about judgment. Here's how the start of the message occurs, and this is really the heart of all of Nahum's message. We find it in chapter 1, verse 2. It says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. That is what the book of Nahum is all about. It is a message of judgment and wrath. And I realize this is a heavy book to swallow. So what we need to do now is we need to go to the Lord and ask his help as we come to the word to understand and apply. Let's pray. God, I come before you acknowledging that I cannot do anything to teach or train the minds of the people here in a meaningful way apart from the Holy Spirit. We could have our minds changed in terms of intellect, but unless your Holy Spirit does a work to convict the heart, Lord, we will go out of this place unchanged. So we pray, Father, that today you would work in us to cause us to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, your Son, And I ask, Lord, that if there is anyone here who is currently unsaved, who does not know you, who has not followed and trusted Jesus Christ, that they would be convicted of their sin and see the reality of their stance before you, and that they would repent and believe. And Lord, for those of us who know you, I pray that this would result in a a deeper trust and love for Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you have recently been hearing about Jonah, then you have heard of the transformation of the people of Nineveh. Back in chapter 3, we read about one of the largest, most wide-scale revivals in all of human history, at least that's recorded. And if you're reading now the book of Nahum and hearing about wrath and judgment, you're probably wondering, what in the world just happened? How did these people go from that incredible revival to now being told they're going to be wiped off the map? Well, we learn immediately from this that revival is not necessarily multi-generational. Your faith cannot save your children. 
Every church, just like every family, is one generation away from apostasy. Consider the people of Israel when they entered into the promised land. You, you know all the things that have happened as we've been reading through the word, as they have experienced blessing after blessing after blessing as they've gone through the land. But that one generation was wiped out, the, the faithless generation, at the beginning of Numbers. But now, as we are concluding Numbers, if you're going through the reading plan, we finish it today. There is a new generation that has arisen, and this generation is going to go into that promised land. And they are going to be led by a man named Joshua, the son of Nun. And he is going to lead them and conquer for them. And we are going to see untrained, unprepared armies of Israelites go in and win battle after battle against stronger enemies. Why? Because the Lord fights on their behalf. And God is going to give them that land flowing with milk and honey, and he is going to protect them and do mighty deeds on their behalf. We will see miraculous things taking place. But after the book of Joshua comes to a conclusion, then we arrive at the book of Judges, and listen how Judges chapter 2 verse 10 describes the very next generation after the one who came and conquered. It says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, the first part of that, that first time it says they did not know the Lord. The word know is an experiential knowledge, meaning they had no relationship to him. And secondly, they didn't even know all the good things God had done. How could they not know? Likewise, we think of King Josiah, who led Judah in its greatest revival ever, but 12 years later, the nation of Judah had already devolved into a state so far from God that the Lord sent the Babylonians to take them into exile. Revival is not necessarily multi-generational. So at the outset, this book should set heavy on the hand of uh, parents who are in this room saying, look, you cannot save your kids. You cannot cause their hearts to be turned to the Lord. You cannot change them from within, but... You can make sure that they know about him. You can make sure that they have heard of his mighty and wondrous deeds. You can make sure that you teach them regularly, day in and day out, so that they cannot get to a point where it says, like Judges says, the next generation arose and they did not even know what God had done. So we begin this book of Nahum here by acknowledging that God is a just judge, but this information is not new. This has been displayed consistently throughout Scripture. When God spoke to Moses back in the book of Exodus, it says that he passed before Moses and he explains himself, he describes himself to Moses in perhaps the most thorough description that God ever offers of himself. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, this would have been one of those passages that every good Jewish parent would have had their children memorizing at their kitchen table. And if you remember, Jonah knew this verse by heart because all the way back in Jonah chapter four, verse two, he quotes the first half of it and he says, God, this is why I'm so mad at you because I knew that if I came here, you would be merciful and gracious to them and you would relent from disaster. He quotes this and says, I am frustrated because you are kind and gracious. But interestingly, Jonah does not quote the second half of God's description. God 
says that he will by no means clear the guilty. But this is exactly how Nahum begins his prophecy. Nahum chapter one, verse three. He says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty, going right back to God's explanation of himself. Now, we have already seen the slowness of God's anger in relation to the Assyrians. The Lord was so gracious to them that he sent them a missionary who would carry a message to them to say, 40 days and you will be destroyed. And so they repent and they turn and God was gracious to them and he does not wipe them out and he forgives them of their sin. But now we are going to see that God does and indeed cannot let the guilty go unpunished. He will ultimately punish those who are guilty. Now it should be noted that our points this morning are really just two different expressions of the same reality, that God is just. When I say that God is just, what I mean is this. First, I mean that everything the Lord does for us or against us is completely justified. Listen, God is God, therefore he does not have to answer to anyone for anything he does. He is the only person that is not beholden to any other person. Therefore, he is justified in all that he does. But let's just say for the sake of an example, if God were required to stand trial and explain why he does what he does, and if he were put on trial and had to say why he gives the judgments that he does, he would be able to show how every course of action that he has ever taken is in full alignment with what is good and equitable. God is good, and all of his actions are carried out in alignment with his perfect character. That is exactly why Nahum begins by rooting us and grounding us in the truth of his perfect character before diving into the various forms of devastation that are going to be poured out on the Assyrians. Now, although we're not going to carefully scrutinize every word of this book, I do want you to grasp these two main points that come from this text, and they are two sides of the same coin. First, God always punishes the guilty. And second, God always vindicates the innocent. First, let's examine that God punishes the guilty. Now, I think that we've already established in recent sermons from the book of Jonah that the Assyrian Empire was wicked to the core. But just in case that wasn't made clear, consider how God describes their guilt in the beginning of chapter 3. He says, "'Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder.'" No end to the prey, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, the galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. This is how God describes in a simple way their vast atrocities. Each and every life that was snuffed out by those cruel warlords was a life created in the image of God. Every last one of those who were chased down and tortured was a human being who was designed for the purpose of knowing and worshiping God. And the Assyrians treated them worse than they would treat cockroaches or ants to be crushed and tormented for pleasure. On November 20th, 1945, there began an 11-month process of trials that have now come to be known as the Nuremberg Trials. These trials paraded dozens of war criminals out to the stand to testify of their great crimes against humanity. The indecency of their actions are only surpassed by the disturbing fact that many of the culprits defended their barbarism on the stand. 
Now, the final result is that 10 men were hanged for their crimes. 10 men. Now, according to the Holocaust Encyclopedia, it is estimated that more than 18 million people were inappropriately killed by the Nazi military. Of those 18 million, 7 million were military combatants who were killed or executed as prisoners of war. 11 million of them were civilians. Over 1.8 million documented cases were children under the age of 14 years old. Now, what if, what if, at the Nuremberg trials, the judge closed out the trial by saying, you know, listen, I realize that you guys made a couple of mistakes in your life and you took a wrong turn here or there, but let's just take another shot at this and go out and try again. You know, you're free to go. Just, you're not that bad. Just, just go try again. You're free. Or what if the judge were to say, look, we're all products of evolution and survival of the fittest is the mantra of Darwin after all. So I guess you actually did the world a favor by eliminating those who wouldn't rise up and defend themselves. You're free to go. Is that justice? Certainly not. Or what if the judge were to have said, you know, who's really to say what's right and wrong? You know, we look at these things and I, I don't really have a standard to go by. Now, although your actions kind of make me feel icky, I can't actually say that what you did was immoral, so you're free to go. Is that justice? Now, interestingly, these are the three of the main problems with the justice system that exists anywhere in the world at any time, the way that we view them, and we get the, the justice wrong, but God never gets it wrong. He always does what is just. If we look at any of these responses, they are not just. The only proper conclusion that could have been reached was that they were guilty and that there had to be severe consequences for the violence that they had displayed. God is a just judge and he will always punish the guilty. There is no sin that will go unpaid. Every offense against God will ultimately receive absolute retribution. Consider just a few of the ways that God describes the judgment that's going to come against the Assyrians in Nahum chapter 3 verses 5 and 6. He says, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Now here the concept of nakedness highlights the shame that God is going to bring on the Assyrians. And the depiction of God hurling raw sewage all over them is a reference to how their nation would not be honored or respected or remembered favorably by anyone in the future. Everyone who thinks of them considers them with contempt. Now, I love history. I love watching things about history and reading things about history and listening to stories and podcasts about history. I love history. And there's one interesting thing that is always true about the Assyrians is that everyone thinks they are gross, horrible, evil human beings. There has never been one author that I have come across who thinks these guys are the good guys. You read a lot of history books that are historical fiction from the point of view of the Babylonians or from the Romans or from the Jews or from many others, but nobody ever wants to make their hero an Assyrian. Why? Because the Assyrians are so awful. And notice that God says he is going to put that thought in the mind of everyone who comes down the line from them. Everyone will look at them with contempt. Notice that God took away their power, he took away their possessions, and he took away their prestige. All of the things that they were pursuing in life ultimately produced nothing. Everything that they thought they gained was lost because of their sin. God always punishes sin, 
because God is just. That's our first point. The second point that we learn from this book is that we see God always vindicates the innocent. Now, the idea of God's vindication is sprinkled all throughout the Bible. In fact, it's probably most noticeable in the book of Psalms, where you have four Psalms that begin, Vindicate me, O Lord. I love the way Psalm 135, verse 14 explains this. It says, For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Now, there's a reason that Jesus can say, Blessed are the persecuted. Now, it's easy for us to say that, but unless you have been persecuted, and you have had all of your possessions taken from you, and you have had your life threatened, and you have had your kids abused, and you have had your own life almost snuffed out, it's difficult to know what is being done in the context of him saying, blessed are the persecuted. The early church was treated that way, and there are Christians today treated that way. And it's difficult to look at them from our life and say, how are they blessed? How are these people blessed? But he says, blessed are the persecuted. And how can he say that? He can say that in part because the Lord will make right every wrong that is experienced in this life. He is going to correct the treatment of all of his people in and for eternity. But there's also a part of vindication in the judgment of the wicked. Earlier, as I was speaking of the Nuremberg trials, did you consider how the surviving victims would have felt if the judge simply said, you're free to go. Imagine, for example, a woman who had experienced every dehumanizing trauma imaginable in a concentration camp for three years, only to hear that her captors and persecutors would not be judged or held accountable at all. Imagine the personal outrage that she would have. Imagine how she would respond. She would have every right to doubt the judgment and credibility and even morality of that judge, would she not? Consider how this little book of Nahum ends. Nahum chapter 3, verse 19. It says, There is no easing your hurt, speaking to Assyria. Your wound is grievous. All who hears the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. God is essentially declaring that every nation... Whoever hears about the downfall of Assyria is going to cheer. They're going to celebrate. Nobody's going to shed a tear for them. They're going to throw a party and say, finally, my enemies are destroyed. Now, oftentimes we quote Romans chapter 10, where it speaks about how beautiful are the feet of those who preached good news. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. And specifically what Nahum is talking about is how beautiful are the feet of those who come and declare that Assyria is destroyed. They are rejoicing over the enemies of God being wiped out. In chapter 2, verse 1, the Lord explains his purpose in the destruction of Nineveh. He says, For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. In other words, God says, I'm defending my family because you have come and attacked them. God was bringing about a bitter end to the Assyrians because of the way they had treated his children. Now, I generally am a pretty easygoing guy. I, I don't usually get angry. I, if people are unkind to me, I, I usually don't respond or retaliate. But if somebody messed with my kids... I think you would see a whole different side of me. I would fight to the death to make sure nobody would take them or harm them. Those are my kids. And here God is saying, I am going to rise up and defend my children. 
in similar manner, God was never unaware of the Israelites' plight when they were slaves in Egypt. God says in, Genesis, or in Exodus chapter 3 that he has seen them and he knows how Pharaoh has treated them. He knows he's not unaware of their slavery. God also allowed them to experience suffering for a time, but he will always vindicate his people by judging his enemies. Which now brings us to a very important theological question, just to see how practical theology really is, how do we know which side of the fence we are on? Consider Nahum chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. God says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. The question is, which side of that are you on? Are you on the side of the fence that he is going to fight or the side that he is going to defend? Now let's start with the bad news, shall we? One of the key truths that you will pick up as you read through the book of Nahum is that literally every crime that was committed by the Assyrians, God takes each and every one of them personally. Now the people of Assyria would not have said they were treating God that way, but by treating others that way, God personally says, you have treated me this way. They didn't even know God, yet they were sinning against him. All sin, every last sin, is ultimately and primarily a sin against God. And this means that every single time that you have lied or cheated or gossiped or rebelled or stolen or lusted or complained, every single time God was the one at the center of your bullseye. Every single sin is a way that you fall short of the glory of God. Every time that you sin, you are punching the clock, earning your wages of sin, which are our death. Every time you sin, you are imagining that you are God and that God is not. My way is the way that I will take, not yours. So here's the problem. The scripture teaches that you are guilty and God promises that he will by no means clear the guilty. And this puts every last one of us in a terrible predicament. So the question is, how can a God who will not clear the guilty love us and avoid punishing us? Well, in order to answer that question, we first need to consider the other side of the coin of God's justice, which is that he will always vindicate the innocent. Now, we've already established that there are no innocent people, not in this room at least, not in any room. So here's how Paul describes us in Romans chapter 3. He says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And then he summarizes all of this by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now in this passage, what Paul is doing is he is creating a patchwork quilt of a bunch of Old Testament passages to show how we are absolutely unworthy of God. But there is one person who does not fit that description. There is one person who never sinned. There is one innocent person and that is Jesus alone. So now step forward out of Nahum and into the gospel because the cross is the place where justice and mercy meet. 
it's important to note that God does not describe himself anywhere in the Bible as fair. If God was fair, we would all be dead. The cross is a just moment, but it is not a fair moment of glory. At the cross, the innocent son of God, the one perfect human being was crushed for our sin and bruised for our iniquities. And that punishment that the the father laid on him, that brought us peace. That is not fair, but that is just. Jesus bore the sin on himself, the sin of many. Now, as we've been reading as a church through the Bible, one thing that stood out to me in the book of Leviticus this year is when they would have sin offerings and guilt offerings, and people were required to bring them to the priest. So if you sin, you bring an animal, and then in the presence of the priest, you would take your hands, and you would lay your hands on the head of that animal, and it was supposed to symbolize the transference of your sin onto that creature, and that creature would then die so that your sin would be paid for. Now consider the one, the only perfect lamb of God, Jesus the Messiah, the innocent one. That son of God had hands laid on his head as they crushed a crown of thorns into him. That crown of thorns symbolizes the sin of the people that would be paid for, that sin resting on him. Or as First Peter tells us, that he bore our sin in his body on the tree. Or as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here what we see taking place is unfair, but just. God the Father takes Jesus the Son, the one innocent one, the one Lamb of God, and he puts sin upon him, and then he is punished. According to Romans chapter 3, verse 26, it tells us that this act of propitiation occurred so that he would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what does the book of Nahum have to say about us? It teaches us that we are deserving of God's wrath, just like the Assyrians. What makes you different from them? But if we trust in the Lord and believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose for our justification, we will be saved. It means that if we belong to him, he is always in our corner and that he will vindicate us. And whatever happens in this life or the next, he will always make it right. Praise God that he has given us this book of Nahum to examine his character just a little bit closer. Consider Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes the innocent or the guilty innocent. So how, is it, how does this whole thing work with justice? God is a just God. If you are here today and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, God is absolutely justified in sending you forever to experience torment for the price of your sin. That's the bad news. But the good news is, if you will only believe on him, the Bible teaches that all of your sin is removed from you, placed on Jesus Christ, who has paid for it completely. And Jesus Christ takes away your sin, but also gives you his righteousness. So you can stand and say, I am innocent. So how can God love uh, love a guilty person like us? By making us innocent people. And that's what he has done through Jesus Christ. And that is the good news that we call the gospel. Let's pray.
Father, I pray for every person in this room who knows you that we would respond to this message from Nahum with great thankfulness to our God who has given us good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Lord, the good news is given that you have conquered our enemies. You have conquered sin and you have conquered Satan. You have given us freedom from our old lives. You have given us the ability to turn to you and love you and follow you. Lord, I just ask that today for all of those who are in Christ, that we would have such a delight in Jesus because of this little book of Nahum that we have heard this morning, that we would never cease to praise. And God, I also pray for anyone in this room who does not yet know you, who is currently under the curses that are given toward the Assyrians, that they know today who you are, that you would open their eyes to understand that you are a God merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, I pray they would know that in an experiential way and confess and repent of their sins and believe. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.